listening to the Hearing the Voice lecture series. The following lecture was recorded on the 12th of March 2015 and features Dr David Smales on tailoring cognitive behavioural therapy to subtypes of voice hearing. If you'd like to find out more about our research into voice hearing, you can visit our website hearingthevoice.org or tweet us at hearingvoice. Um, so this is the outline of what I'm going to talk about. Um, first off, kind of trying to define what CBT for voice hearing is. Um, then I'll talk about how effective or not effective um, CBT for voice hearing. Um, and more broadly, really, psychosis, because most of the research that's done on um, the effectiveness of CBT kind of treats, um, well, it assesses positive symptoms together, so most of the outcomes are about CBT for positive symptoms of psychosis um, rather than specifically voice hearing. <clears throat> um, and then talk a little while uh, about why CBT for voice hearing might not be particularly effective. Um, and basically that's in part because we think that um, CBT for voice hearing doesn't really assess, uh, doesn't really um, acknowledge in a sense the, the heterogeneity of voice hearing experiences. Um, and one way that you can try and do that is to try and tailor CBT for subtypes of ABH. Um, so I'll go through some evidence for the existence of subtypes of um, auditory verbal hallucinations, uh, talk about the manual that we've tried to develop for um, CBT for, for subtypes of ABH, um, and then finish off with a few of my concerns about the, the subtyping approach that uh, we've adopted, but also subtyping kind of more generally. So, uh, what is CBT for psychosis? Well, my impression is that there's probably as many different types of CBT for psychosis as there are um, clinicians doing CBT for psychosis. <laughs> it's a really um, broad term, lots of people do lots of different things and, and call it um, CBT. Um, for one thing, that's probably uh, a core assumption across all the different versions of CBT for psychosis is this idea that it's not psychotic experiences themselves that are the problem, it's the way that people interpret um, their unusual beliefs or their unusual experiences. So um, that's an argument from a paper by uh, Tony Morrison and, and Barrett from 2010. Um, this paper is kind of a survey of um, CBT for psychosis experts um, and it asks them what are the key ingredients of CBT for psychosis. Um, and effectively they come up with this enormous kind of four-page list of things that CBT for psychosis involves. I think that's a, a pretty good indication of how big and broad and messy um, CBT for psychosis is. <clears throat> so rather than present that, uh, I thought I'd present um, the overview of CBT for psychosis that's in a protocol for, uh, for the positive trial, which is a trial that we think is still ongoing in Germany. So this is the protocol that they've published in 2010. Um, so at the start, you do sort of the um, engagement and assessment and formulation, and key to that um, is normalizing the experience, so for voice hearing explaining that. Voice hearing isn't as rare as we used to think it was. Um, lots of people who don't have mental health problems have voice hearing experiences. Um, and then the other sort of key bit here is, no, I'm not gonna get the cursor, um, is that column uh, titled hallucinations. So CBT for hallucinations, at least according to the guys who run the positive trial, is that it should involve um, interventions that reduce stress, 
uh, interventions that help the voice hearer to reevaluate the source of their voices. So rather than um, believing that the voice is the product of some kind of supernatural agent, um, considering the possibility that the voice is, is a part of you, is, is, is a product of your own mind. Um, reality testing um, regarding the beliefs you have about the voices. So lots of voice hearers think their voice is omnipotent um, and very powerful and um, can kind of manipulate them. And so, so small behavioural experiments that try and demonstrate that that's not the case are, are a core part of, of CBT. And then um, the last one on there is improving coping strategies for persistent hallucinations. Typically this involves things that um, should interfere with people generating them in a speech. So humming, singing, listening, music, and trying to sing along with it, um, listening to the radio, giving somebody a telephone call and, and having a chat. Um, the next column along about dysfunctional cognitive schema is also um, relatively important. So lots of people who hear voices um, tend to have quite negative beliefs about themselves and negative beliefs about others. So um, they, they use this term defectiveness, which I'm, I'm not entirely on board with. Um, but this idea that uh, tell the person who hears voices um, get better, you probably need to um, improve their self-esteem, in other words, and you probably need to um, encourage them to have slightly less negative views about others, which should um, encourage them to do things uh, like get involved in social interactions and stuff like that, which should help their recovery. Oh, I shouldn't have clicked. <laughs> yeah. Grand. Um, so, does CBT for psychosis work? Um, basically, it depends on who you ask and when you ask them the question. So, I think the first meta-analysis of CBT for psychosis um, was in 2005 by Zimmerman and colleagues. Um, their meta-analysis included 14 studies, and you might not be able to read this on here, this was going to be the value of my pointer, um, but what they report is an effect size of CBT on um, positive symptoms of about 0.57. So this is 14 RCTs um, synthesised together that seem to have a, a moderate effect size. And we'll talk about effect sizes quite a lot over the next few slides. So a good rule of thumb is that an effect size of 0.2, basically how much the treatment works, um, if there's an effect size of 0.2, that's not particularly good. And um, if it's smaller than 0.2, there's basically very little effect of your intervention. If there's an effect size of about 0.5, we call that a moderate or medium effect size. And that's not too bad. That's kind of what we take as being a relatively effective psychological intervention. And if there's an effect size of 0.8, um, that's terrific. That's a really effective intervention. <coughs> So, first meta-analysis suggests that CBT for psychosis works and it has a, a moderate effect. The next meta-analysis in 2008 by Till Wikes and colleagues um, reports a similar effect size, um, about 0.4 I think, if I can read the text. Um, but many more studies are included in this meta-analysis. This includes north of 30 studies depending on which outcome you're looking at. But what's interesting about the Wikes meta-analysis is that just at the end of the abstract, if you can read it, um, they start talking about the methodological quality of the trials that they're considering. So two key things in a trial are um, what your control group is doing and um, whether your assessors are blind to who's been given what treatment. So uh, in a, a good trial of a, of a psychological therapy, 
you would have your control group doing exactly the same thing as your intervention group, your CBT group, apart from the fact that they received um, CBT. So if your CBT group are going along for therapy um, once a week receiving, let's say, 8 or 12 hours of, of CBT with a clinical psychologist, you really want your control group to also be seeing a clinical psychologist for an hour a week or 8 weeks or 12 weeks, but not doing <coughs> CBT. So just receiving supportive counselling, something like that, basically having a chat about how things are going. The other key thing is that you want your assessors to be blind concerning what... Um, intervention participants are receiving. So um, your assessors can't know who's receiving the, the treatment as usual and they can't know who's receiving the, the active intervention, the CBT. Um, that's because we think that when assessors are unblinded they become a little bit biased um, and they typically um, rate people who are receiving the, the new intervention as doing better than people who receive the, the treatment as usual or the, or the control intervention. And what Wikes et al. report is that in the better studies where it doesn't look like um, rate of blinding has been compromised, there's a much smaller effect. Um, CBT psychosis still had a, significant reduction, um, had a significant effect on positive symptoms, but it was very, very close to being non-significant. So we're now talking about a small effect of 0.223 um, in the less high quality CBT psychosis trials, we're still talking about a relatively um, sort of medium-sized effect in the region of 0.4.5. So the first kind of indication that there's maybe something going on with the quality of um, the, the trials uh, that are assessing CBT psychosis. And then last year, Keith Law's uh, research group, so this is paper, um, primary author is a guy called Jahar, um, they meta-analyzed meta 34 studies, um, and much like the previous studies, they report that um, across these 34, there's a significant effect of CBT psychosis on positive symptoms. Their um, effect size is a bit smaller than previous studies, but it's still significant, and if you took this effect size, you'd think, okay, let's keep going with CBT psychosis. But, like the Wikes at Alnet analysis, they were interested in what happens when your radars are blinded to treatment and when they're not blinded to treatment. And when radars are blind to treatment, you get an effect size of less than 0.1. When radars aren't blind to treatment and know that somebody's been receiving CBT for psychosis, you get an effect size of about 0.57. So it looks like there's a hell of a lot of bias here that people, when people know what intervention a participant is getting, they're much more likely to say that they're getting better. So this is pretty bad for CBT for psychosis. It suggests that our previous uh, beliefs about it being a, an effective treatment were based on, on biased studies, basically. But to make things more complicated, uh, later on in 2014, a meta-analysis uh, by Van der Gaag et al. Um, came out in schizophrenia research. Um, this was a, a small meta-analysis of just 18 studies, um, and it was smaller because it only included studies that employed individually tailored formulation-based CBT. Um, so this is probably what most CBT therapists would say that they do, formulation-based work that's um, specifically tailored to each person's kind of life history, that sort of thing. Um, and 
their synthesis of the data is much more like the pre-Jauhar et al. Um, sort of effect sizes. So uh, they report an effect size of CBT for hallucinations of 0.44, um, which is in that medium range. And then when they looked at studies that had um, intact blinding, so the raters remained blind to what condition participants were in, there was no change in the effectiveness of CBT for, for hallucinations. Um, in fact, there was a tiny increase, so a change from 0.44 to 0.49. So this would suggest that actually um, there's not such an issue about low-quality studies being biased towards CBT for psychosis working. So how can we reconcile these two things? Well, Keith Laws later on that year uh, published what I think is a pretty good account of, of how to reconcile these things, and um, to some extent it revolves around this idea of Vanagar had all have said, we're, not, we're, going to include, we're going to ignore these sort of 12, 15 studies that have done CBT that we don't really like. We only want to look at individually tailored formulation-based CBT. So that meant that they didn't include lots of the studies that Zhao Hart all had included, and lots of those studies were ones that said there's no effect of CBT on um, positive symptoms of psychosis. Um, you can kind of argue about the, um, the merits of, of doing that. Um, but I think Keith Laws seems to think it's, it's a bit of a sort of sleight of hand to get rid of some um, unpleasant results. The other important thing is that Vanagar et al. included the Avatar Therapy Proof of Concept RCT. So um, I'm guessing we're all relatively familiar with Avatar Therapy and what that is. Um, and that initial RCT generated really, really promising um, data. There were big group differences in those who received the, the control intervention and those who received um, avatar therapy, which would make sense why Vanagar et al. get this much more promising um, effective CBT for psychosis. But Keith Laws argues that, yeah, avatar therapy seems to work on the basis of this trial, but it's not cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, what they do in avatar therapy is quite far removed from what people do in typical CBT. And um, if you have a look at their manuscript, they don't once mention CBT anywhere in there. So while it's psychological therapy, it's maybe not CBT as we currently think about it. So it's a, it's a really messy picture at this point. Um, and since the Jalha et al. meta-analysis and, and the Van der Gaag meta-analysis, things have become much more promising for CBT psychosis. So uh, later on last year, uh, paper by Veligan et al. with um, Doug Turgan from Newcastle, uh, this was a study run in America, um, randomised 166 participants to receive either CBT, um, an intervention called CAT, which in the UK CAT I think typically refers to cognitive analytic therapy, in the US it refers to cognitive adaptation training, so this isn't a, a form of kind of CBT as we would think about it, or psychological therapy the way that we would think about it. Um, it's much more about putting reminders around people's houses to take their medication, to do their kind of activities of daily living that probably help them and keep them sort of ticking over. But it's not about sort of <coughs> helping them alleviate emotional distress or resolve any interpersonal problems, anything, anything like that, that we would normally think of as, as being psychological therapy. So we've got CBT, we've got CAT, we have a group of participants who receive 
combined CBT and CAT, and then our treatment as usual participants who are just receiving antipsychotic medication in sort of typical um, contact with a community mental health worker. Um, um, this paper is a little bit uh, unusual. We don't have um, effect sizing, we don't have um, follow-up mean scores on, on lots of assessments. So I can't tell you anything about effect sizes, but from the p-values that we've got, we can be pretty sure that there's not a hint of an effective CBT working. There's no effective CBT in comparison to treatment as usual. So another study would suggest that CBT isn't really helping these folks. But you could argue, well, maybe when we combine CBT with CAT, and we know that people are taking their meds and they've got a little bit of extra support, maybe that's when CBT can really kick in and start helping people. But that's not true either. So in the manuscript they report that the CAT group and the CAT plus CBT group improved to a similar extent. So the CAT intervention is working, the CBT intervention isn't working at all. Again, um, there's no p-value report for this and there's no uh, means to calculate effect size and um, we just kind of have to take their word that there's no um, even hint of an improvement in the CAT plus CBT group. So that's kind of problematic and, and another um, CBT psychosis that suggested isn't particularly effective. And then the other issue um, is that the positive trial, which I mentioned earlier, that was the study that I took the, the overview of um, CBT for psychosis from, um, remains unpublished. We don't really know what's going on with that trial, so Keith Laws occasionally on Twitter <coughs> mentions it, and I think his suspicion is that it probably has pretty disappointing results for CBT for psychosis, um, and they're kind of sitting on that data. But we don't really know. Um, but it's a relatively big study, and it would kind of sway a meta-analysis probably if it had... Um, very good results for CBT, um, but it would also be problematic um, for CBT for psychosis <coughs> performance if it was an, another um, null study. But that being said, um, this is just last week, because I wrote this slide a week ago, but now about two weeks ago, um, Dan Freeman and colleagues uh, published the results of their worry intervention for paranoia trial. Um, <clears throat> this was an assessor blind RCT, which is terrific. Um, had a 24-week follow-up, and they report moderate effect sizes for their intervention. Um, they don't have an active control group, so they're, they're control participants who didn't receive um, this, this new intervention, and just had regular patient appointments with their psychiatrist, their antipsychotic meds, and uh, visits from a community mental health worker, so we don't have that control for you know, how much you've seen a clinical psychologist, is there some non-specific effect of just that therapeutic relationship, so we don't know about that, but this looks like it might be a promising treatment for paranoid thinking. Um, I'm not going to talk about that a, a lot, but I did want to mention it because there's a couple of good things about that study and about the work that's led to that study, which I think are probably important for understanding where we might want to go with CBT for, um, for voice hearing. Um, so, to sum up, at present, CBT for voice hearing has, at best, small effects, and those small effects might be inflated because of biases in the trials that have assessed the efficacy of CBT for psychosis. So, not a particularly good story at the moment. Um, so, why isn't CBT for psychosis more effective? Well, um, nine years ago now, Birchwood and Trower um, published a paper arguing that CBT for psychosis um, practices run ahead of theory. So in the 90s, um, 
psychosis. Clinicians working with people who had psychosis took the general principles of CBT for anxiety disorders, for depression, and kind of shunted them into practice of how you would treat CBT, how you would treat psychosis. So the nature of CBT for psychosis doesn't really come from um, models of voice hearing or models of paranoid thinking or models of delusions. It comes from what seemed to work with people who had depression and anxiety. And that's maybe one reason why it doesn't work particularly well. So what I think Birchwood and Trauer are arguing is that we need CBT for psychosis that has much closer links to our <coughs> best models of psychotic experiences. And that's what I think the Freeman and all study did pretty well. So they've probably done 10 or 15 years of um, research developing a good model of paranoia and a developing intervention that tries to get at the key cognitive mechanisms um, that they think bring about paranoid thinking. So is that what we need to do with um, CBT for voices? Probably. Um, the second thing is that voices are hugely diverse experiences. We know this from Nyonian David's paper from 96, uh, Simon McCarthy Jones and colleagues' paper in Australia, which was initially published online in 2012, but the in-print version of it came out uh, just last year. And then from here on the Voices Own uh, phenomenological survey of, of voices, which was just published in The Lancet Psychiatry last week. Voices aren't a homogenous um, experience, there's a huge, huge range of experiences, and CBT for voices probably doesn't address that diversity. <coughs> um, I think most CBT for voices comes from this sort of inner speech kind of paradigm, um, so where coping strategies involve things like humming, listening to music, to try and interrupt um, a person's production of inner speech. So, how can we improve CBT? Like I said, we can try and base our interventions much more tightly on the models of voice hearing that we have. Um, and we can try to address the heterogeneity of AVH. But you might argue, well, don't we already do that when we generate formulations for um, service users? So they come in, we take, um, discuss what their experiences are like, discuss what might have happened to them to, to kind of generate these experiences. And I think to some extent that's true. But um, in generating formulations, I think, at least from a research point of view, it's not, we're not 100% clear about that process. Um, is the formulation something where you're thinking about how life events um, have brought about an AVH, what kind of cognitive mechanisms have brought about an AVH, and um, those kinds of things. Um, they're not particularly theoretically based, um, and so they're probably not doing what we want them to do when we think about developing better interventions. Another concern might be that the massive heterogeneity in AVH might prevent us from, <coughs> from developing interventions that can kind of address it. Um, and again, I think that's probably true. Um, no two people who hear voices are going to have the same type of experiences, um, to, at least to some degree. Um, and so you could argue that, well, Jesus, you just need as many different interventions as you have voice hearers. So how can you develop sensible, manualised um, CBT for that? But what's handy is that you can see patterns in the heterogeneity. Um, you can see some kind of evidence that there might be subtypes of AVH. 
and whilst it might not be possible to develop CBT for each particular version of AVH that you ever see, it might be possible to develop CBT for kind of a manageable number of subtypes. So, I'm going to go through a little bit of evidence for the existence of um, subtypes of AVH now, and that begins with a sort of relatively long history of trying to subtype AVH or trying to um, identify subgroups of, of voice hearers. Um, and so this comes from a, a paper by Masoud Stefan from uh, Frontiers a couple of years ago. Um, <clears throat> so back in 1932, uh, Claude and A um, argued that they could identify a, a subgroup of voice hearers who had insight and a group of voice hearers who, who didn't have insight, and that there are important differences between these two groups. Um, and that there, were a, there was a subgroup of voice hearers whose voices had repetitive content that seemed a little bit like the obsessions you, you see in OCD, and then a group of voice hearers who have AVH that are much more similar to what we think about when we think about classic AVH. Um, then the sort of most famous one, Jasper's in, in, in 59's suggestion of pseudo-hallucinations. So pseudo-hallucination is one that's heard to be coming from inside the head. A true hallucination seems to be coming from the right-hand corner of the room, so in external space. Um, in 66, Senman, again with this idea that we have a group of patients who have insight and a group of patients who lack insight, and we might need to develop uh, different interventions for those. Um, but in short, none of these subgroupings or subtypes have been particularly helpful. Um, so a nice example of that is this Kopolov and colleagues paper from 2004 showing that there's no difference in the impact on, on voice hearers um, functioning or distress if they're having pseudo-hallucinations or if they're reporting true hallucinations. That distinction isn't particularly helpful um, in determining how well they're, they're going to um, do in therapy. Again. More recently, um, a bunch of researchers have used cluster analysis um, to try and identify subtypes on the basis of the phenomenology of the experience that voice hearers report. So, <clears throat> Stefan and colleagues in 2001 reported um, two clusters of AVH, one characterized by voices that had low, low complexity, um, were experiences being in outer space. Um, external space, outer space sounds like a kind of <laughs> Star Trek type thing, um, and had repetitive content. Um, the other subtype of AVH was characterised by high complexity, um, was experienced internally, and was um, typically experienced as um, being multiple voices. So the, the first cluster we can maybe think of as being that OCD obsessional like kind of experience, but experienced as a hallucination rather than um, self-generated thought. And the second one probably is our kind of classic um, auditory verbal hallucination. Um, and then much more recently, um, Sam McCarthy Jones's paper again um, identified four clusters. Um, the first one was of non-verbal auditory hallucinations, so um, auditory hallucinations that were either 
unintelligible speech, mumbling whispers or, or music, that kind of thing. Uh, constant and commanding AVH, which were essentially there almost 24-7, um, that addressed the voice hearer in the first or third person. Um, <coughs> and in contrast, the third subtype was own thought AVH, where there was this possibility that the voice here recognised this might be my own thoughts to some extent that they're, they're similar, um, and the voice never directly addressed them, so it was always in the first person. And then finally, um, replay AVH, where the voice here acknowledged that there was something similar about the voice to things that had been said to them previously, so almost a, a memory-based AVH. Um, in a separate paper, so this is uh, the paper um, from the International Consortium on Hallucinations Research, Carthy Jones and colleagues um, proposed the possible existence of five subtypes of AVH. Um, the first one is, is hypervigilance, second one memory-based, third one inner speech-based, and so this is what I'm kind of going to talk about in, in more detail later on. And these aren't quite exactly the terms that they use, but they're the terms that I'm going to use. Um, the fourth subtype um, is, was epileptic AVH, and obviously these are AVH that people experience um, as, a result of a, as a result of epilepsy and so unusual patterns of, of, of brain activity. Um, and then deafferentation AVH, where either hearing loss or um, extreme social isolation result in what we typically call release phenomena. So um, the best analogy for this is um, visual hallucinations that you see in Charles Bonnet syndrome, so where people lose their eyesight and they start to have visual hallucinations because there's no input in the visual cortex anymore. Um, and you can also get these when you blindfold people for a few days. Um, they start to have um, quite vivid uh, visual hallucinations as a result of that. So it's all because there's no stimulus going into um, a particular sort of sensory cortex. Um, so these subtypes have been proposed. Why would we care about them? Um, well, if the phenomenology of these subtypes of AVH are different, that might suggest that there's different neural and different cognitive mechanisms underlying them. And if that's true, then we might need a separate we might need to develop different interventions to address those different neural or cognitive mechanisms. There's not a lot of evidence that um, we should do this. Um, there's only a kind of handful of papers. So the probably best known <coughs> one is this paper by Stefan and colleagues from 2001, uh, which is a case report of just two participants who heard voices that came with this sort of OCD, obsessional-like um, voice where there was um, very, very repetitive content um, which didn't change over a, a long period of time. Um, these voices didn't really respond to antipsychotic medication at all, um, but because of their similarity to um, obsessions in OCD, um, fluvoxamine, which is a, an anti but it's an SSRI, which is used to um, used as a treatment in OCD, um, was trialled in these patients, and their AVH did seem to respond to fluvoxamine. So that would suggest that there's something different about these hallucinations from classic um, AVH, and so you need to tailor your, um, in this case, biological intervention to that subtype. But since that paper, there's been very little research on um, subtypes and interventions and, and how you might develop interventions for different subtypes. 
And I don't think there's, there's basically anything on how you might tailor psychological um, interventions for different subtypes of ABH. So basically, that's what we've tried to do in the manual we've developed with um, a local clinician called Guy Dodgen, who um, has been sort of working on this for, for a few years, even prior to um, the start of hearing the voice, I think. Um, so, like I mentioned before, I'm going to talk about these three subtypes uh, in a bit of detail in a, in a speech based AVH, memory based AVH, and hypervigilance AVH. Um, so, I'm kind of going to run through um, my sort of idiosyncratic schematic models of how I think in a speech based AVH come about, and then memory based and hypervigilance, and that'll um, kind of give a rationale for why we do um, the interventions that we think we should do with um, each particular subtype. So, in a speech-based speech AVH, uh, we think develop when the processes that are typically involved in normal inner speech generate a cognition that is like expanded inner speech. So, um, the cognition has the, the form of essentially typical external speech, it's, it's like a, a full sentence, so you don't think to yourself, go to the shop and get some milk by just saying milk, you think, go to the shop and get some milk. Um, it has the sort of perceptual um, qualities of having another person's voice, so the work of Charles and, and Ben and Simon McCarthy-Jones and their survey work, we know that inner speech can have this almost perceptual-like quality where it sounds as if it's a, your mom or your girlfriend talking to you in your, in your head. Um, and the cognition is unpleasant, so it's a, it's a distressing experience, so the cognition is typically about um, something that's not very nice. So we have this cognition, um, because the cognition is unpleasant, people typically uh, go through some kind of thought suppression on that cognition or on related cognition, on a related cognition, and that makes these cognitions only feel more and more intrusive. So thought suppression is a terrible strategy for trying not to think about something. It only makes that thought rebound into consciousness even more, and it makes it feel even more intrusive because you think, oh, Jesus Christ, I've been trying to get rid of this. Why the hell is it still there? Um, and then what we see typically in auditory hallucinations is that people have um, problems with agency and with identifying that they're the author of their own actions or, or their cognitions. So, I tend to call this reality discrimination problems uh, for a variety of reasons. Other people call it um, sense of agency or source monitoring, those kinds of things. Um, so when we have a cognition that feels super intrusive and you have that combined with um, reality discrimination problems, um, that's when we get an inner speech-based AVH. We've also got some data now to suggest that negative emotions um, make it much more likely that person will misinterpret their own cognitions for an external, non-self-generated event. Um, that fits in with what we know about when hallucinations occur. So they tend to occur when a person is feeling very sad or very anxious. So you're experiencing these unusual cognitions. Um, you have this sort of trait-like problem with identifying whether you are experiencing a cognition or whether somebody is, is saying something to you, and that's made worse by a negative affect. And in that kind of perfect storm, you might experience an inner speech-based AVH. So this is our, our model of memory-based AVH, and you can see kind of the right-hand side of this is, is really similar. So we have the reality discrimination problems again. Negative affect um, might modulate that and make that worse. 
Again, we think thought suppression is um, playing a role, but it's just this left-hand side that, that is different. Um, and in some cases, this is called kind of the raw material of the AVH. There's reasons to um, not particularly like um, that term, but it's, it's good shorthand for thinking that the cognition that is experienced as an AVH is, is somehow generated differently when you have an inner speech-based AVH or when they have a memory-based AVH. So this model kind of comes from um, the PTSD literature and what we know about how um, the cognitions that seem problematic in PTSD develop. So in PTSD, a person has a traumatic experience and um, typically they, if they dissociate during that experience, they engage in lots of data-driven processing. So by data-driven processing, what I mean is that they don't think about the meaning of the event, they don't um, process it in terms of an, a narrative, they process it in terms of the sensory nature of the experience, so what they're um, seeing, smelling, and hearing, those kinds of things. So in a car crash, you're focusing on sort of the smell of the petrol, the sound of the screeching brakes, um, the lights of the car that crashes into you from behind in your rear view mirror, those kinds of things. So it's not encoded like a normal memory would be of your 18th birthday, where you're like, this is a birthday, I'll store it with other, all my other memories of my birthdays, it's stored just in terms of these sort of sensory impressions. Now because of that, that means that in PTSD, when you have a, a memory of that traumatic experience, um, it's very different to a, a normal or biographical memory. So it lacks contextual info, so um, when I think about my 18th birthday, it feels like it was ages ago because I know that I've had lots of other birthdays since then. Um, I get sort of visual imagery and auditory imagery of like the pub I was in and the songs that were played um, and things like that. In PTSD, you often just get that one sensory image, so you might just get a sound or a smell or a visual image um, and you don't get that contextual info. So you don't get information about, oh well this is, didn't happen in this place, it happened in that place 12 miles away in Bedlam. Um, and you don't get information about the time. So you don't get, this isn't happening now, this happened 12 years ago, 12 years ago when I was 18. You don't get that in a traumatic memory. You get the sensory impression and it kind of feels like it's happening here and now. So we can use that, that model and that information to try and develop a, a good model of memory-based AVH. So we have the same thing where there's a traumatic experience, the person typically dissociates and engages in this data-driven processing, and then the same processes, well at least some of the same processes that we think are involved in generating PTSD, um, memories in, in PTSD, generate a cognition that lacks contextual info, that um, is unpleasant, and that is triggered by the sensory or emotional reminders of the trauma. So this is another crucial point that I should have mentioned two minutes ago. When I think about my 18th birthday, I have to actively think about it and I have to think, right, 18th birthday, go back. Right, to 18, I was dating that person, I was living in this place, that must have been what happened. Yep, that, that matches, that feels like a memory. With memories that are, are formed during traumatic experiences, you can't do that because you haven't gone, oh, this was a birthday memory and it happened a while ago. Um, in part, this is because of the, the way that it's encoded. So, because you've encoded it as scary bright light in my rear view mirror, horrible smell of petrol, sitting in my car, um, 
noises, screeching brakes. That's how it's been encoded. So those are the things that are going to trigger that memory. Um, and because those things can be typically environmental stimuli, so the smell of petrol, sitting down in a car, um, a, a bright light kind of in your left visual field, um, you tend not to recall these things intentionally. You're in the environment, those things present themselves to you, and you unintentionally recall that experience. So this kind of cognition that we think forms the basis of a memory-based AVH lacks this contextual info about where and when, so it feels like it's happening now. It's triggered by sensory or emotional reminders of the trauma, so feelings like panic and horror and, and helplessness can, can trigger it as much as um, sensory information that matches. Um, it's unpleasant, again, that's why it's um, distressing. And it tends to be an imperfect replay of past events. So our memory isn't terribly reliable, it's not like taking a photograph or a sound recording. So the cognition that can be generated might be like a memory in some ways, but it can be um, different in others so that a person doesn't say the exact same thing that they said at the time, or their voice might sound different to how it sounded at the time. So we've got this really unusual cognition. We have these same processes that we've talked about before for in a speech-based AVH <clears throat> that make it feel like you haven't generated this cognition. It feels like something that's really happening. And in general, you're not particularly good at differentiating between your own cognitions and the outside world. And that's made worse by high levels of negative affect. And in that, again, sort of perfect storm type situation, that's when you experience a, a memory-based AVH. So the third model, um, this is basically stolen from Guy Dodgson and Sue Gordon's paper on hypervigilance AVH. We have a, an escalating series of life events that tend to revolve around a, a single particular issue. Um, so the example that they give in their, uh, their paper is this chap, um, Big being born, and him becoming concerned that other people think that he's a paedophile. So he starts... Um, become very concerned that other people think that he's a, a sex offender. So he's got very specific negative beliefs about what other people think about him. And that kind of has two consequences. One, it makes him really, really anxious. Two, he starts to scan the environment for threats. So he's looking out for this particular phrase or comment, something to do with him being a paedophile. When he is in the context of ambiguous environmental noise, so that might be the the chatter of a crowd in a, in a pub, the chatter of a crowd in a street. It might be the hum of a fridge or the hum of an air conditioning unit. Um, you're able to pick out that pattern that you're looking for in that ambiguous environmental noise. So you start imposing that pattern on this ambiguous stimulus. The anxiety is important here because we're pretty sure there's a few studies to show this that um, negative emotions increase your reliance on top-down processing. So when you feel bad, it's more likely that you're going to pose a pattern on a stimulus than when you're feeling relatively neutral or relatively good. So when you have this combination of scanning the environment for a, a particular phrase, a particular threatening event, you have this ambiguous environmental noise that's really easy to um, impose a pattern on, and you have this massive high reliance on top-down processing, that's when you might experience a hypervigilance AVH. So those are our three models that the, the manual is pretty much based on. Um, so what we, ask the, what we ask clinicians to do at the start of the manual is to um, 
in formulation and assessment, try to work out what kind of subtype or subtypes of voice hearer reports. Um, and this is largely based on um, the phenomenology of their voice hearing and the triggers of the voice hearing. Um, so for example, um, if their voice hearing experiences are typically triggered by the reminder of an assault, that's relatively good evidence that they might be experiencing memory-based AVH. If they only ever experience voices when they're on a noisy street and they never experience voices when they're in a quiet room on their own, that suggests that they might be experiencing hypervigilance AVH. Thirdly, if their voices are kind of long conversational utterances where they can have a back and forth, they say novel things, that might suggest that they're having inner speech-based AVHs. None of this, however, is kind of diagnostic, so there's no like sort of silver bullet, we don't think, that kind of goes, okay, this person is definitely having this kind of experience. Um, I'll talk a little bit about that again uh, towards the, the end when I talk about some of the, the, the problems with um, subtyping. Um, so this is still very much a kind of, here's a set of clues. As a clinician, you need to decide what you think is going on with this person. <clears throat> um, importantly, as I said, kind of in that first line, clinician can opt for this idea that multiple subtypes might be present. I think this is um, going to happen probably eight, nine times out of ten. Um, so a person doesn't just ex experience in a speech-based AVH or hypervigilance AVH or memory-based AVH. They experience some mixture of, of all of those. And again, we'll talk about that towards the end. So um, I'm going to quickly go through CBT for each kind of subtype um, start with in a speech-based AVH. So to some extent, in a speech-based AVH, um, CBT for in a speech-based AVH is kind of typical to most forms of CBT for voice hearing because that's where most CBT for voice hearing seems to come from. Um, so psychoeducation revolves around explaining that there are lots of different types of inner speech, so kind of um, Charles's by Gottskian approach to how inner speech develops in the different forms um, it can take. <clears throat> Psychoeducation about how we feel less ownership over low effort cognition, so that stuff that I talked about, about, right, let's think about my 18th birthday. When I have the cognition about my 18th birthday, I know that I generated that because I've got this sort of cognitive paper trail of the operations I went through to try and generate that memory. If I have this really intrusive thought, like, Dave, you're terrible at your job, I feel less ownership over that cognition because it just comes from nowhere. I don't have that paper trail of going, okay, I did X, Y, and Z to generate that cognition. Um, go through problems with thought suppression and how that's a really, really, really ineffective strategy for trying to not think about something. The effects of negative emotions on our ability to separate um, the things that we've thought from the things that are in our environment. Oops. Um, and that's it. Um, and then we go through the coping strategies in, in behavioural experiments. And again, the kind of typical stuff about trying to interrupt in a speech, so humming, singing, talking to a friend, those kinds of things. <clears throat> Transforming the sound and the content of, in a speech. So um, the manual tries to encourage voice hearers to um, hear their voice in the voice of Donald Duck to make this kind of like amusing sort of um, weak and not particularly um, powerful figure. So trying to generate the voice hearing experience that you have in your inner speech and transforming that inner speech into Donald Duck. And then a similar thing with the content. 
This is almost a bit like um, what they do in avatar therapy where you have this back and forth with the voice, um, trying to generate the voice in your inner speech but having a conversation with the voice and trying to get the voice to say nicer things to you. Um, reducing reliance on thought suppression, reducing uh, rumination, so this is meant to be a problem for um, people who um, have inner speech based AVH because they kind of get into a, a, um, a cycle of talking to themselves. Um, and trying to adopt more effective emotion regulation strategies. Um, so um, distraction and trying to seek social support rather than doing thought suppression, doing rumination, um, using drugs or alcohol. Um, in terms of memory-based AVH, there's some similarities to what we would do for in a speech-based AVH. And that kind of makes sense because the two models I showed you were kind of 50% similar at least. So <clears throat> the start of psychoeducation is, is a bit different because we're talking about probably different types of cognitions. So um, education about how memory normally works, so that idea that to think about your 18th birthday, you've got to go, right, well, that was my 21st, that was my 20th, that was my 19th, that must have been my 18th, that's who I was dating then, that's um, the school that I was going to, um, how that works normally, and how memories can be different when they're formed during a trauma, so how they're different to our normal memories. So they're not tagged with contextual information, um, so they can feel like they're happening here and now, um, and they can be these sort of sensory fragments rather than this richer image of, okay, that's the pub I was in, that's what music I was playing. Um, and then similarly, as for in a speech-based AVH, the idea that low effort cognitions are really hard to identify as being self-generated. So if you're having an intrusive memory, it's hard to go, that was definitely a thought, that wasn't something that somebody said to me. Um, problems with thought suppression and how that can increase intrusive thoughts. And then again, this idea that when all of this is happening, when you're feeling, um, when you're experiencing high levels of negative emotions, it becomes even harder to separate what's an internal cognition and what's an external, non-self-generated event. Um, the kind of coping strategies in, in um, intervention proper, I guess, um, is to some extent adapted from PTSD interventions, because that, that's where we kind of take the body from. Um, but at present, there's sort of some concerns about doing that wholesale. Um, in part, that's because um, where we are uh, at the moment with our, our research, we kind of can't train a bunch of clinicians to do EMDR or prolonged exposure for, for PTSD. We don't have clinicians who work in EIP services who can, can do all of those things, but also up until recently there was concern about whether it was safe to do um, the kind of interventions that you do in PTSD with people who have psychosis. So um, PTSD interventions are kind of typically um, for people who've had specific trauma. So kind of classic example is um, the car crash. So um, in some PTSD interventions, you get a person to go back to the, the scene of their car crash and you demonstrate to them that there was nothing they could have done. There was always going to be a crash here because of the layout of the road and the terrible junction and the fact that there's a bush there that um, precludes your view. And you might not be able to do that for some of the sort of abusive experiences and, and things like that that you often see in, um, in psychosis. That being said, um, 
there is a growing body of research suggesting that actually you can do the interventions that people use in PTSD in people with psychosis, so a feasibility study in 2013 and then an RCT that um, came out just last week that I'll, I'll talk about later. Um, so that's the RCT. Um, but primarily these things avoid um, revolve around reducing avoidance. So in PTSD people try not to think about the, the the sort of unpleasant thing that happened to them, and that's similarly what we think goes on in memory-based AVH. So um, <clears throat> we think you can probably do this with just sort of general discussions about trauma. So this might not be something people um, have thought about for a, a, a long period of time, um, and it's in the same way that traditional PTSD interventions try to encourage a person to um, get that this unpleasant memory back into normal narrative memory, normal autobiographical memory, that's what discussion of trauma is, is meant to do. Um, thought suppression is kind of your biggest avoidance strategy, but also lots of other different types of safety behaviours. So um, if being in a particular part of town where a person was assaulted reminds them of what happened to them and is a trigger for memory-based AVH, trying to stop that safety behaviour and encourage a person to go to those parts of town that typically elicit these experiences for them might be a good thing for them to do so that they can start coping better with those, those memories. Um, and then again from PTSD interventions, changing the appraisals of unpleasant experiences. So this idea that it was my fault that the crash happened in PTSD is a common one and that's why you go back to, to the crash site. Um, and typically that's also something that people who've had um, abuse experiences believe um, about those experiences, that it was their fault that they were abused. Um, and again in PTSD, this idea that I'll never get over this, like my life has been fundamentally changed by this thing that happened to me. Um, trying to change that, Cognition is a key thing in PTSD, and again, it's probably a key thing here where you know, a traumatic experience is horrible, but there's no reason why it has to ruin the rest of your life. Um, and then, again, much like in a speech-based AVH, this idea that you're trying to adopt effective emotion regulation strategies, so social support and distraction rather than um, avoidance strategies. Um, so hypervigilance AVH, CBT involves kind of a whole range of different things um, because it's a much different experience, we think, in terms of mechanisms um, to the other types of AVH. So most of the psychoeducation revolves around top-down processes and how um, those are kind of modulated and, and when they become more important. Um, so we talk about the role of top-down processes and try to show people how they work using sort of... Uh, illusions, so things like the McGurk effect um, and binocular rivalry to demonstrate predictive processing and, and that kind of thing. Um, we talk about how um, our perceptual systems work to help us avoid threats, so um, this idea that um, when we detect threat, our perceptual systems work in a really quick and dirty way, so that if we're walking through the jungle and for some reason there's a belt on the jungle floor, we don't spend a lot of time going, is that a belt or a snake? We do a really quick and dirty processing, we just get the hell out because we assume that it's a snake. So um, perception works to avoid threat in a very fast and dirty way and that makes us make some mistakes. Um, also, how fear and anxiety makes us <coughs> even worse at detecting threat, or at least 
it exaggerates our bias towards detecting threat. So if you're in your flat in Gateshead and there's a belt on the floor and it looks a bit like a snake because you're not anxious, because you're not afraid, because you're not in the jungle, um, you don't think, Jesus Christ, that might be a snake. Run. You spend the time to think, no, that's probably Katrina's belt. Um, whereas when you're in the jungle um, and you are afraid, you spend less time working out whether that's a belt or a snake because you're scared, you just run and you make a false alarm about, um, false alarm by detecting a threat when it's absent. Um, and then finally, talk about how we make these kind of mistakes, especially when we're dealing with noisy data, so where the signal to noise ratio of the environment is, is pretty poor. Um, so that's kind of this idea that there has to be this ambiguous environmental noise for you to impose a, a pattern onto. Um, but what we use as kind of a helpful analogy are friendly fire incidents. So um, friendly fire incidents never happen in um, sort of practice combat situations because nobody's feeling that fear and anxiety at a really sort of um, meaningful level. So there isn't that threat that you're trying to avoid. They typically happen when people are trying to detect a specific threat. So there's a particular combatant or something like that that they're trying to identify. And they typically happen when the data is noisy, when there's a poor signal to noise ratio. So in the manual, we have a nice example from the wire where one police officer shoots another police officer um, after sort of an extended chase. Um, it's sort of a very fast moving chase and it's night time. And so the person has, the police officer who shoots the other police officer has really bad data to rely on. He kind of can't make out who's who. Um, and then a coroner's report of a, a genuine friendly fire incident where um, the pilot um, kills one of his own men because the radio message that he receives is very scratchy. He gets the wrong coordinates and so sends a bomb to the wrong place effectively. So that's that. Again, nice analogy that there's not particularly good signal to noise ratio and so you make this, this sort of terrible error or a false alarm for, for threat. Um, the corporate strategies for hypervigilance AVH typically revolve around reducing arousal or reducing a sense of threat. So um, in the actual moment of you know, thinking, geez, I think something terrible is going to happen, trying to, just, trying to reduce arousal through something like progressive muscle relaxation. Um, more broadly, more permanent, trying to reduce sort of perceived threat by getting good data. So what's the prevalence of people being attacked for this kind of thing? How often does somebody get falsely accused of being a paedophile <coughs> and murdered? Those kinds of um, ideas. Um, reality testing, so talking to trusted others about your beliefs, whether other people have this knowledge that you think they, they might have. Um, and rational self-talk and distraction. So again, these effective emotion regulation strategies that people typically aren't using when they're having um, voice hearing experiences. Okay, so in terms of data, uh, there's relatively promising data from an early version of the manual. So this was a study run before um, Hearing the Voice got involved with Guy and, and started working with him when they were, the manual um, wasn't in the form it's in now and was only concerned with two subtypes, with hypervigilance, AVH, and inner speech-based AVH. Um, so it's a paper that's still in preparation uh, with nine participants. Um, so there's no control group for, for this um, study. So these effect sizes are enormous, but these are kind of uh, pre-intervention and, and post-intervention um, change scores. So they're um, really big and, and really encouraging, but they don't tell us about what would happen 
that was an intervention, people tend to get a lot better um, after they, they come into services. So this is kind of um, encouraging, but <coughs> no hard data that this is working. Um, and so at the moment, what we're doing is, is running an acceptability study um, with the new version of the manual. Um, so looking at these three subtypes, and then the other important thing about the manual in its current form is that it's delivered with the help of um, a, an iPad, so the um, visual illusions and things like that, and this, the friendly fire instance that I talked about are um, preloaded on this iPad that we give to clinicians, and then um, they can use that to demonstrate uh, these kind of psychological phenomena to voice hearers. Um, we think that's a relatively good idea, and that some of the clinicians that we talked to, um, well, I talked to one chap last week, and he, he was um, he doesn't have an iPad at the moment, he, he should be um, coming into the study in a few months. Um, but he always tries to show people the McGurk effect, um, he loads it on his NHS computer, and by the time that he tries to show it to somebody in, in a session, it tends to crash. And so I think just having a computer that works sometimes is maybe a, a, a positive thing. That being said, there's a chance that um, for voice hearers who are going along with some psychological therapy, the last thing they want is to be presented with like, some videos on an iPad. They maybe just want to sit there and talk about their difficult family relations, um, something bad that happened to them in the past. <coughs> and so that's why we're doing um, this acceptability study. Um, so to finish off, I'm going to um, chat a little bit about what I think of problems with subtyping in general, but um, most in a couple of things about our specific approach. So um, one argument is that the, the subtypes that we've identified and that um, Sai identified in his manuscript, they're just one in like a long history of subtypes that people have suggested and that look like they make sense, but then a few years later you realise, don't tell us anything, anything particularly new and don't really help us in any meaningful way. Um, what we think why, we're diff why our approach is different to um, previous attempts at subtyping is that these subtypes are really solid theoretically. So then a speech-based AVH model is something that's been around for a long time, has a huge amount of empirical support. Um, Guy's hypervigilance model um, is relatively novel, but um, has grown empirical support in terms of how um, anxiety and fear changes the way that um, top-down processing works. Um, and the memory-based AVH model, while we don't have a terribly good model of how um, the, the role memory plays in, in voice hearing, um, the PTSD models that that's based on are terrific models that um, help shape really, really good CBT interventions for PTSD, so there's a lot of empirical support for a big part of, of that model. Um, another concern is that voice hearers report multiple subtypes of AVH. So um, in Simon McCarthy Jones's um, subtyping paper, um, more than half were classified as experiencing more than one subtype. Um, obviously, Sai had different clusters of, of subtypes than, than we had, but <coughs> we are pretty confident that this is what we'll find in our acceptability <coughs> too. Um, what I'd argue is that this isn't really that problematic. Um, you can try and deal with a person's most distressing voice first. So for example, if they had um, memory-based AVH that was really, really unpleasant and that said very horrible things to them repeatedly, and in a speech-based AVH that were a little bit less distressing but they could kind of chat with and, and control, then the easy thing to do would be to deal with the memory-based voice first and then deal with the in a speech-based voice. Um, 
and hopefully what the manual would do is uh, it would help you use separate interventions that will actually work with the two voices in, in different ways. <coughs> so I don't think that's too much of a problem. Um, one thing that we think we probably find in the acceptability study, because we have some clinicians who work in first episode psychosis and some clinicians who work with people who have longer term problems, is that we will, we think people who have longer term problems will more often report multiple subtypes of ABH. Um, in one of Sai's papers from 2010, before he became McCarthy Jones, when he was just plain old Jones, um, he argues that um, ABH often go through this dynamic developmental progression. So the first voice hearing experience a person has might be something like a hypervigilance experience or a memory-based experience. But as they become more and more distressed, then um, that experience becomes much more complex might start recruiting processes involved in inner speech, so it might change from something that's relatively simple to something that's more complex. And there is some data suggesting that that might be the case, so utterances get longer um, in people who've heard voices for a, a longer period of time. So I think that criticism is important, but um, something that we can maybe overcome. Um, I think the bigger problem is that at the moment we just don't know enough about the subtypes. So um, for memory-based AVH, when we talk about their phenomenology in the manual, there's not really much we can say other than this should be a bit like something that you've heard previously. So we don't really know whether people who have this type of experience hear them as coming from inside the head or outside the head. We don't know whether their um, focus of attention is important, so that's one of the key things that we think differs between hypervigilance AVH and, and a speech-based AVH. To me, it would suggest that the focus of attention shouldn't be important because the idea is that something in the environment grabs your attention and that's what triggers um, this cognition that's related to a traumatic event. But we just don't know at the moment, and that's problematic for trying to identify the subtype and also for trying to develop a, a better intervention. <coughs> Um, and this isn't just a problem for memory-based AVH, it's also a problem for hypervigilance <coughs> AVH. So in a paper, another cluster analysis paper from last year, from Lucy Garwood and um, Guy and, and Sam Carthy-Jones, um, they performed a cluster analysis on 32 auditory hallucinations, so not 32 different participants, 32 different types of auditory hallucinations from a smaller group of participants. <coughs> um, and they identify four clusters, and the first cluster is the one that they identify as representing hypervigilance hallucinations. Um, and several things about this cluster are absolutely spot on. So, um, the voice was characterised by being located externally, so that's great because we think that person is imposing a pattern on a, a mechanical hum of the noise and crowns, so that's, that's terrific. The voices were typically threatening, so again, that's what we're looking for. This person is looking for specific negative comments about them. Um, the person's attention was externally focused, so that's great because we think that they're on the lookout for some kind of external threat, but just before that point about attention being externally focused, they occurred during a range of environmental noise levels, both noisy and quiet. That's kind of disastrous for a hypervigilance hallucination. It should only happen when there's a mechanical home, there's a crowd noise, something like that. This shouldn't be happening when somebody's in a quiet <coughs> environment. There's a chance that we just haven't quite grasped what a person means by quiet environment. Maybe they do mean, oh no, yeah, there was a home in another room and that's where, where the voice seemed to come from. But this is a bit problematic and we need um, 
a lot more data on the specific subtypes before we can um, really develop a, a manual that is very, very good at helping the clinician identify what subtypes a person is experiencing. Um, and last slide is my concerns about not being enormously happy with the intervention that we have for memory-based ADH. So as I mentioned earlier, um, there's been this concern that interventions that are typically used for PTSD can't really be used in people who have psychotic disorder for a variety of reasons, but I think most of the time to do with um, them trying to reprocess uh, really, really specific, really, really unpleasant um, traumatic experiences that are quite dissimilar to sort of car crashes and combat experiences that people typically um, think about in PTSD. Um, in the future, I think we would quite like to use something like a prolonged exposure or EMDR intervention for people who have memory-based ABH, and we think that it's probably um, safe to do so. Um, so this is the meta-analysis that I, I, sorry, the RCT that I mentioned earlier from Van der Berg and, and Van der Gaag. Um, they um, examined the effect of prolonged exposure and EMDR um, versus a, a waiting list control um, in people who have psychosis but also have PTSD. Um, in the manuscript, they report that um, both interventions reduced uh, participants' symptoms of PTSD, but they don't report anything about their um, psychotic experiences. But we know they have the data. So um, their trial protocol um, is online, and we know they have um, auditory hallucinations rating scale data. Um, so we need to get in contact with them and ask whether there was any difference in hallucination severity across the trial. Um, or maybe that's going to be another paper that might be out soon. Um, okay, that's me done. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts produced by Hearing the Voice, you can visit our website at hearingthevoice.org or join us on Twitter at Hearing Voice.